Frank, we did it. We made it to 230 episodes of this glorious, glorious podcast, and I cannot be more excited to be here with you on this lovely, lovely evening in November. I believe it's tradition for me to always say, I can't believe we made it this far. And it's a terrible evening out there. The wind is howling. The rain is coming down. The sun sets at 2 p.m. or something like that. Um, But it's lovely to be with you here tonight at 2.30. That's correct. Yeah. So, well, actually, you know, we're, we're, the podcast comes on the last day of November, which is kind of crazy. We've had our turkey fill over here in the United States. Well, at least for us, we just go to Whole Foods and get the two person turkey meal. That's what we do. That's, that's the winning move. Let other people do the work for you. That's very true. Yeah. They don't have to do anything. We, we've, we have done, I've done the turkeys in the past. I've done all the things, but the problem is, you know, they're too big. There's only two of us. We don't need that much turkey. <laughs> Yeah, actually, traditionally, I would always buy like a little chicken or something with like me and my roommate because, yeah, what are you going to do with a turkey? Eat it for a month? Well, things are huge. It's very true. And, and, you know, it's only good for so long. But let's get into it, Frank. It is episode 230, which means it is lightning topics. If you were a brand new listener to this podcast, well, you were in for a treat and we appreciate you being here with us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All right, Lightning Topics, we do every 10 episode where we take topics from you, our listeners, and we do five-minute sprints, basically. We we were inspired by these Lightning Topic conferences we used to go to, and it was really fun, and we decided to incorporate them in the podcast because there's so many great things, and we always don't get a chance to cover them. Um, So that's what we're here to do today on Merge Conflict. I'm excited. These are always the fun ones. Uh, I, I always say it's a little bit more work, but it's also the the fun ones because if I'm talking up a terrible storm, you cut me off at five minutes, <laughs> and I love having that little counter. So this is this will be fun, and I think we have some uh, good topics. A little bit of feedback from last episodes, a little bit of follow up. So I don't know when should we get started. Let's do it right now. And let's talk about the topic that is on everybody's mind because last week on the podcast, we talked about running iOS apps on the M1 Apple Silicon devices that were just released. And I believe, Frank, you have an official update for us because as soon as the podcast came out, everyone was like, does it work? Does it not work? How does it perform? And you started tweeting all of these photos about it, Frank. So give us the update. Yeah. So after that podcast, I think it was evident that I had no idea what I was talking about in that I didn't have an actual M1 chip to or computer to test all these apps against. And it turned out, James, that the DDK could not run apps off of the App Store. So I was in this little bit of a predicament. And I decided I, I just can't stand not knowing. And I decided to spend the big bucks. I, I, I bought the absolute cheapest um, laptop, or not laptop. I got the Mac Mini M1 from the Apple, uh, and I did my best not to spend a lot of money, but it was still seven hundred dollars. Now, did you buy this version of it because it was the cheapest? You want to save money, or was it because it was the only thing that was available? Uh, correct on both accounts, <laughs> if that's possible. Uh, yeah, there was quite a delay. The big delay happened when you tried to get 16 gigabytes of memory. That put things off until about Christmas time. So I, I wasn't going to be that patient. <laughs> the whole point was I wanted to be impatient. So I, uh, the baseline models, fortunately, are easily available. And here in Seattle, we have 
crazy delivery services. So I was actually able to get it overnight and it was there on the Porsche the next day. And the very first thing I did was download every single one of my apps that I hadn't taken off of the app store. Cause we talked about it last time that you have the choice of whether to sell your app on Max, your iOS app on Max. And uh, I started with your app. I started with Island Tracker and it worked perfectly. Good job, James. Thank you. Yay, those keychains worked, all that magical work. And my favorite part about this is that I think it looks great. I tweeted out some photos to it and I like the dimensions. I don't know if you can expand it to make it bigger or if it's locked in at a certain resolution, but at least the default that you showed, it was sort of a four by three box, which is sort of in between iPad and iPhone, I would say. And it looked really cool. My favorite part was the dialogue box because it had the app icon and the little UI alert view. I thought that was neat. Yeah, that dialog box, is, it's the new alert box. It's getting a little bit of slack online because all the text is centered and people are like, what are you doing centering text? I think the dialog looks great. I don't know. Especially, like you said, because it has the icon at the top. And it turns out those windows are really easily resized. And these apps, your app, uh, resized fluidly uh high frame rate really well <laughs> it's nice and you know you did zero work for that so good job apple <laughs> thank you how about your apps because you actually have what two versions of iCircuit in the app store how did that go yeah super confusing um so i enabled it so that i could download it because i really wasn't sure uh it turns out it works I'm going to I'm going to give it a B, a B minus maybe because there are some clunky parts of the UI because iCircuit is a file-based app. And for that reason I use like the UI browser, what's it called? Whatever, document browser, something like that. And it so the 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 your fresh install new user experience is a little bit rotten, but the moment you get like a circuit up, everything works great. And high frame rate animation, the simulation engine is running really efficiently, knocking it out of the park. It's it's running far faster than it's ever run before. So a little bit of UI clunkiness that I want to work around and improve. But otherwise, like fundamentally, the app is working fantastically. And I think I've said it before, I'm happy to go fix those little UI clunkiness things because uh, they should be easy. Very nice. Yeah, I saw in the screenshot that you showed me that in the App Store, it says Mac apps and then iPhone, iPad apps or something. How does it how does it distinguish between the two? Yeah, it's a little odd. They give you two tabs and the app is a little bit buggy. In fact, if you scroll poorly, one of the tabs disappears. But say you search for iCircuit by default, uh, there is an, a Mac version of the app and that's what the App Store will show you. But then there will be a little tab there that says iPhone and iPad apps. You click that tab and it shows you search results for iPhone and iPad. So it's pretty simple in that regard. I'm a little nervous about it being a tiny bit hidden because it shows you Mac apps first. How many people are going to click on that second tab? But that's UI store stuff that Apple can work out. Uh, that is Apple encouraging you to create a Catalyst app. Um, that is what they did. Remember, if they did this on the iPad, when you go to iPad, and if you're not a universal app, it will show up as iPhone apps in a separate tab, encouraging you to create a universal app. So I see what Apple's doing here. So Frank, since we're out of time, what are you going to do with your apps? Are you going to keep them? You're going to leave them? What's the the 20 second breakdown? Go. Uh, five of my apps made it through my QA testing. Uh, those are good to go. 
two of them I'm going to work on and improve and get them back up continuous. In particular, the IDE, I need to do a little bit of work, but overall, I'm very satisfied. So I'm going to try to get most, if not all of them up. Beautiful. So if you've already purchased one of Frank's app, you will be able to not give him more money, but don't worry <laughs> because, I mean, that's the reason why you would do it, right? Because they already bought the Burn. iPhone app. Now they get it there. However, Frank, you just got a huge raise, a 15% raise. Actually, the way the numbers work out, it's a 21% raise. What? So yeah, I know math. Um, <laughs> so what's happening here? Apple usually takes 30% uh, from I always get gross and net backwards, you know, Apple takes 30% bottom line mm. <laughs> from your, from your monies. So your revenue, and it's been like that pretty much since the app store started, there were some exceptions. If you had subscriptions that like lasted for a year or something like that, you could get a 15% um, rate, mm-hmm. but Apple, the benevolent dictator that they are has decided that all purchases, if you are a company that revenue profits a million dollars or less in a year the following year you will get a 15 percent rate uh which gives effectively a 21 percent raise to every app developer out there because most of us aren't making a million dollars a year that's awesome i mean i think this is one of the biggest steps i believe that Microsoft may have made some adjustments here and there. I know Google made some adjustments whenever Apple sort of pushed forward, but this is one of the the biggest steps forward. This obviously does not fix Epic's problem of their in-app purchases. I believe they may they may make more than a million dollars. I'm just going to assume, but for everybody else, this seems relatively fantastic, or at least for the first million dollars, give you a little cut there. Uh, this is this is amazing. I think that this is to me one of the first times that I feel really great about, you know, putting my apps into the apps or we, we've always complained about the 30%. Maybe we'll start complaining about the 15%. However, you know, that kind of really, when you tear down the numbers, if it's 15% or 20, 21% bonus, now you're looking, if your app's a dollar, you're getting 85 cents on the dollar. Like that's, it's, it's a lot closer, like something in your mind with math numbers, you know, like, like eight is a lot closer than to, to, to 10 than seven, even though they're <laughs> one difference in your mind, right? You're like, Oh, seven. Oh, but you know, if you're at, if you're at eight and you're like, Oh, I might, might as well be 10, you know, something like that in your mind works that way. So this is fantastic. Now is are they retroactively giving you money from the last year? Uh, no, that is oh. not correct James. <laughs> so this should all kick in if you qualify in January 1st, I think Apple does their own fiscal year that happens to be the calendar year. So I think that's how that's going to work out. And it does create that weird slot, but we can all make jokes about now they've incentivized not making a million. You want to like give your app away for free toward the end if you're if you're near that number. But the truth is, if you're making a million dollars a year, you're doing absolutely fine if you're not running your company poorly or anything like that. So this is a really, um, I made fun by calling them a benevolent dictator, but it's a really savvy move on their part. A lot of times when you see discounts like this, like you see wholesale discounts, if you buy one of the part, 10 of the parts, 10,000 of the parts, if you buy 10,000, you get the lower price. And that's usually how, I think that's how Microsoft first did it, is like if you if you sell a bunch or make so much money, then we'll decrease the rate. This is kind of the opposite. This is really throwing money into the long tail by saying, no, we're going to, this is like a progressive tax. We are going to uh, 
tax you less the less you make you know it's it's a more fair system because it encourages the underdog to come in if you're making a million dollars hopefully you'll be just fine but for all of us this is a big <clears throat> sigh of relief especially the number like 10 to 15 percent those are like standard tax rate kind of numbers you know that's mm-hmm. like an excise tax that's like a sales tax it's really easy to swallow a 10 to 15 percent because if you run a business you run into people taking 10 to 15 percent from you all the time so it just feels like a more comfortable number i have to imagine that somewhere apple somebody was like hey if we make less money on this thing we'll have to pay less taxes and vice versa Funnily enough, now you will be making more taxes or more money, Frank, which you will have to now pay more taxes to the federal government. So they're going to get your money no matter what. Um, that's the flip side of it. Thanks, James. I really oh. appreciated that little uplift. No, this is purely good news. You are not going to bring me down. This is all good <laughs> no, stuff right here. It, it is good because how taxes work, I think it is perfect, right? The, the less you make, the the less taxes you should pay, make or should pay, the more money you make the more you're there. So like if you're in a bracket where you're getting up to that million dollars, then you're only going to get taxed on over a certain amount, and at least in the US because taxes are crazy. But let's get on, Frank, and let's stop talking about taxes before everybody turns off this podcast. So let's talk about C-Sharp 9. Woo, C-Sharp 9. C-Sharp 9. Well, we had the um, official release of .NET 5, which coincides with the official release for C-Sharp 9. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been stealing a few C-Sharp 9 features in my apps here and there, but I haven't I haven't gone head, head first into it. But now, I don't know why I even care about official releases. Like, who cares? If it's a beta, they, they release good betas. But it's nice having it without the hyphen beta. And I feel like I can properly use this language now. However, that said, that was for .NET. You did something cool. You wrote a blog entry on how to use C Sharp 9 in Xamarin. Tell me more. Well, yes, that's very good because it goes very well with the blog post I put out last year, which was how to use C-sharp 8 in Xamarin projects. Wait, um, okay, wait, wait. I Let me interrupt. So, so did you just copy and paste or did you no. actually have to change anything? <laughs> I, I did because it's actually a little bit different this year. For C-sharp 8, there were more NuGet packages readily available for some of the features they added. Now, people have to kind of understand how C-sharp works. Most of the changes, if not nearly all of them, are compiler-based changes and not necessarily runtime changes, not necessarily like usually there's not new classes, but sometimes like value task that was added or different tuple support that is, you know, are added later. But with .NET 5, and or at least how it works is when people ship versions of the SDKs and their CS proj, it basically, there's a target file hidden somewhere that says, Hey, I'm fully compatible with C sharp seven, three, C sharp eight, C sharp nine, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Xamarin projects, um, iOS and Android, for a while when C Sharp 8 came out, were only C Sharp 7 um, by default. And then they flipped it over, uh, and now the default is C Sharp 8. The problem that most Xamarin developers have is that we all use .NET Standard 2.0 libraries, and those are C Sharp 7.3 by default. That's the default version. However, you can change all of this and you can say, no, 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 don't use the default. That's silly. Use a specific, specific Lang version. So you can go into your CS proj, 
You can just set it to preview if you want, which would give you all the latest, greatest features of whatever Visual Studio you have or you know runtime you have or compiler you have. Or you can just say 9.0. And when you do that, it will automatically flip it on for that project. So the first thing I do in my .NET standard project is I open up CSProj and I say Lang version. You can, I think there's like latest and preview and or whatever. There's a bunch of different ones. You can read the docs, but you can just say 9.0. And then you get 9.0. Almost, Frank. Almost. Oh, there's a caveat, huh? But I, I first want to say, you don't even have to edit your your project file. That's a little bit old-fashioned, James. I use this thing called a GUI and an IDE. And if you double-click on your project, you can choose language version 9, latest major, preview, latest. But tell me, what's this caveat? I'm scared. Can you? I don't know if you can. My version, I can. I just did it right now. Oh, take that. I, I think they removed it from oh, Visual no. <laughs> Studio on Windows. Oh, I'm on Visual Studio for Mac. Yeah, I'm going to have to create this and get back to you later. But anyways, you could also do that, too, or as you were at one point. But maybe it is. Maybe I just can't see it. But anyways, that's what you do. Um, the thing is where there were like NuGet packages for some of those things that I just talked about. There's a weird, a weird oddity with um, records and some of the private in it things that were added, which would be like the main, one of the main things that you would want to use C sharp nine for. So when you change your like a monkey class to a monkey record and you say monkey string name, string location, you get squiggles, Frank, you get little squiggles and that's not fun for anybody. And it says predefined type system runtime compiler service is external in it is not defined. And you're like, I guess I can't use C sharp nine in my Xamarin or .NET Cylinder projects, but Frank, Add three lines of code and you're done. You just bring in that, you bring in that namespace and then the compiler is happy and you're done. Can you explain why, Frank? You are, <laughs> you know more than me. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know a hundred percent about how this thing works, but I do have a little experience with this. So once I read your blog entry, I was like, oh yeah, now I remember because a couple months ago I enabled C sharp nine support and continuous my ID. And I compiled a program in the IDE, tried to hit run, and I gave this weird error about external init missing. And I, I looked around, and it looks like this external init is a new feature of .NET 5, new, newly released, newly christened .NET 5. What is it, though? As far as I can tell, the purpose of it is to create kind of a dependency tree for how to initialize assemblies and the classes with them then as they are loaded. We've always had global variables with statics and such, but there was always, I don't know about you, a little nagging question in the back of my head of like, in what order are these things being initialized? Mm. And I think with uh, some new C-sharp 9 features, they... Uh, wanted to make it more concrete and more guaranteed that things get initted in order. And I think that that's what that class does. It's a, it's a flag kind of. It's a wacky one. And yeah, it's a, right now, if you're doing .NET Core, .NET Standard, .NET Framework, um, .NET Xamarin, anything that's .NET 5 specific, you will have to go through this route, which is kind of a bummer. And maybe Visual Studio will ship an updated DLL reference. Maybe they'll get around it. I don't know, but that would be ideal if they did. Yeah, I, I'm honestly a little bit surprised that they shipped it this way because it was going to break all of us that are that are just trying to cheat a little bit like this. But 
uh, you know, version ones of products. <laughs> this happens sometimes. And that is to say, before we get off of this topic, is that technically the official support is the default. So technically, if I air quoted here, technically the default is actually what's actually supported. But if it compiles, Frank, then we're good to go. Yeah, and it's the common language runtime, not the C-sharp language runtime. So right. you don't need to change the runtime every time that language changes, but whatever. It's, it's a tiny little hack. It's fine. No worries. Which um, I, I was kind of alluding to this tiny little hack going on to the next topic. It's another C-sharp 9 topic, and it's a fun one. It's one that I am both excited about and slightly horrified about is that we can now write code like if statements and variables and function calls outside of a class, James. Just just right at the top of the file, wh wherever you want in the file, you know, you know, column zero, column one, however you count your columns, you can just start writing code. Uh, how do you feel about this? As an object-oriented person, we generally don't write these kind of like global bits of function code. How, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't understand how it would necessarily affect me as a application GUI developer. You know, I, I can't, couldn't really comprehend too much. I guess maybe my, I don't know, maybe my Xamarin Forms app would simplify a little bit, but I don't know. That's the only thing I, I can't really understand it. I think for me, what's neat about this is the educational scenarios that are available Right now, let's say you want to teach someone C-sharp, um, you have to teach them all about namespaces and using statements and, and classes and all this stuff just to get started to write code. But now you can just write code in a file and it will totally work. And you can have classes in this other thing and, you know, and records and, and you can jam it all together in the file. And that is, I think is really cool. It could simplify that down for the educational scenarios but I don't necessarily know like long-term what's the point of it. I guess maybe command line apps, but again, I'm not creating command line apps that often. What about you? Uh, this is exactly command line apps. I mean, <laughs> you said it. This is to simplify the getting started in C-sharp scenario, which I've actually realized is bigger than I think. You know, I live in a little bit of a bubble. I've known the language for so long. I just assume everyone knows the language. But with Continuous out there, I've learned a lot of people are learning C-sharp, and they're writing your very basic console write line, console write line, console read line, console read key, console write line. And if you're writing those kinds of apps, there's really no reason to get super formal about the program class or anything like that. I don't think there are any huge advantages to that. Even the C-sharp 9 blog post called it boilerplate. They're kind of admitting that this is just kind of extra stuff not needed here. Uh, it, it turns it into kind of a scripting language mode. And I really appreciate that because oddly enough, C-sharp has always had a scripting language mode. It's just people never really used it in that form. And so this is just kind of bringing out that, that scriptiness that has always been there. So let, let's just make it a little more formal and let people just get to it. I like it because it just cleans up the language a bit and it doesn't really hurt anything. So I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, the one thing that I think really blows my mind with this feature isn't the feature, but it's how the potential of this feature, what this feature may become 
And what I mean by that is a good friend, Daniel Casalino Kazoo, he has a GitHub project. I think it's called like mini, mini apps or micro apps or something like that. But what he does is he has a normal C-sharp project, like a command line pro- project. And what he did is he somehow hacked a Visual Studio. So every file, every CS file was its own app in general. So you could have, you know, 20 files and they all show up in the debug menu. So you could run each of them or run all of them simultaneously together. And I think that is really neat. Yeah, that is super cool. Not to pull the F sharp uh, banner or flag out, but um, we've had uh, some version of this because F sharp scripting is a little more forefront. And the, but the things that we've missed are the debuggers and the finer IDE experiences. Mm. So that is a really cool extension. Uh, and he's very experienced in Visual Studio, so I expect n- nothing less than that than perfection from this. But that's super cool. I'm a little surprised uh, Microsoft didn't do it out of the box. Now that you say that, seems kind of obvious, but great feature. Well, who knows? <laughs> who knows what's next <laughs> for this feature? That's why I said I'm excited for the future of it and see where it goes. Well, you did get a little F sharp in there because you know there's one more other programming language in the .NET world, and that's Visual Basic. Don't forget about VB. And um, I want to talk a little bit about VB because there was a blog post that I'll put in the show notes about sort of VB's first class support in .NET 5 in and around WinForms apps. Don't forget that we that there's a lot of people that use WinForms every day. There are tons. It's way more than you could possibly fathom. I just released an app that was WinForms. It was fantastic. This first class support includes all the app framework, but also all of the designers and all the things that you'd want from VB. And I thought that that was sort of a nice, just filling out the scenario. However, I got to say, Frank, where do you, where do, I mean, we don't have Kathleen Dollard on, which we really (laughs) should to, to give, give the five minutes of VB, but where is VB in the world? We're not VB developers, but you told me before the podcast, you just almost created a new VB project. So Where's VB? You know, there's first class support, which I think is fantastic. There's a lot of VB developers. When and why should people check out VB from your perspective? Oh, you just threw me a curveball there. I was going for a whole different one. But uh, uh, why VB? Because VB is a dynamic .NET language. It has the same flexibility that you get from Python and things like that, where it's not so strict. It's just like, hey, you want to write a program? Let's write a program together. The, mas- the namespace is called like my, so you say like my computer name, things like that. It was designed for the old fashioned term, uh, term rad rapid application development. It's kind of funny that this whole announcement is kind of full circle, full circle, because I started using Visual Studio to use Visual Basic because Visual Basic had the best user interface designer out there. And in some ways, we haven't surpassed it even today. And it was a very productive environment for writing apps. Sure, it was slow. Sure, all the C++ people made fun of you incessantly. Sure, you never knew exactly which DLLs to ship with your app to make it actually run. (laughs) But you throw all those other things away. The language was uh, very nice. And the designer was amazing. Where is VB today? Well, it's it's definitely not as popular as it used to be. A lot of VB programmers became C-sharp programmers. But 
it has a lot of benefits, in my opinion, over C-sharp. Some of the default syntax and the examples, and I totally blame Microsoft for this, make VB look very ugly because they're writing VB code in a C-sharp kind of way. But VB syntax is actually very succinct and can be very refined and very cute. And it doesn't care about care about upper and Oh, actually, maybe it does. Maybe VB.net does, but uh, uppercase, lowercase. <laughs> maybe you can even turn that mode off. You can turn off error handling. That's how cool VB is. <laughs> like, don't you want a language that's just like, I'm not going to be so picky. I'm just going to help you write an app. And I think that's always what basic and visual basic have been to me. I say, yeah, do it. Live your life. I, I love that you can use whatever calls your name. And like I said, VB is 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 all over. I think you're right. Like often different programming languages when they're just documented, you know, they might be documented by the same person. That may not be the, the, how you would, you know, take advantage of that, that language. I haven't actually written any VB in my life. Um, surprisingly, no, I I got away from it. Uh, My first job was all C sharp. I mean, I went to C sharp and C sharp in college. I was C plus plus and C sharp and I just dove in, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not against it in any way. Just like I'm not against that. We talked about it like, hey, choose your own your own journey, your own path, because each of them has their own advantage. How, where were you going to go with the VB story? You said you had a different take on on this. Uh, no, it was just the, the pitch of why you should use it or don't use it. Th- those are hard arguments to make. Mm-hmm. Like for me, VB is just home. It's just happy land. Uh, Basic was the very first programming language I learned. So... All I want to do is dim my variables and call sub. You know, that's that's what I think programming should be. All this object-oriented stuff, that's that's been a fun diversion. Functional programming, that's cool for the mathematicians. But in the end, you just want to set some variables and call some procedures. And that's what VB is all about. And um, yeah, like I said, it, it's a dynamic language tool too. So we don't have very many of those in .NET. We have Iron Python. We have... Iron Ruby, but those are, you know, just implementations of other languages, other runtimey kind of things where VB is, .NET was built to run VB, so it runs very well and all that stuff. The compiler is very good and it has inline XML. Well, don't you want to do inline XML? <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go create our next VB empire. I'm down. Yeah, I think that it's fascinating. Every language has its own advantages and disadvantages, right? And I think sometimes languages and, 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 and application frameworks can get complicated, right? I was reading a blog post and it was talking about, you know, when you're doing, you know, you know, windows or Xamarin or WPF developments, like there's a lot of romancing and a lot of ceremony. You got the mm-hmm. XAML and then you got the, the code behind, and then you got these other files. There's all these programming languages you got to learn and you got to do this other thing. And sometimes you want to put a button on the screen and you want to click on it, Frank, that's all yeah. you want to do. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And um, VB is used, or basic is used in a lot of places that we don't think of. The office tools, Excel, there are a lot of people that do a lot of crazy Excel programming using Visual Basic. There are a lot of people using Access out there that are using Visual Basic. So I think it's just a great gateway for people using those kinds of products to build maybe a, a Xamarin app, you know, take your take your VB skills and apply them to iOS or something. Do it. All right, let's switch course 100% and let's talk about chess, Frank. Chess. Oh, I, I can't believe we're all... I love that the nation is talking about chess right now because it's a fun little game and I 
I used to love chess and then I got overdosed on chess and then I stayed away from chess and then I got bad at chess. So I didn't want to play chess anymore. And then Netflix released this show and I started liking chess again. And you used to have a chess podcast. So I'm like, James, did you watch the show? Are you going to do a podcast about it? Tell me more, James. The answer is yes. That's right. Coffeehouse Blunders, me and international chess master, Daniel Wrench, the chief chess officer of chess.com. He is back with me to break down every single episode of the Queen's Gambit because I started watching like you. I've been a longtime chess fan. I'm not very good at chess. I have my membership at chess.com. I play a lot of games. I get beaten most of the time. I've tried to learn by listening and watching Danny. But it, it's it's just sort of, you know, someone that doesn't code that comes to a coding live stream. You're like, I kind of can follow along and understand <laughs> that. Um, but when I same thing, when I go to chess, like they're speaking in chess terms and I'm learning slowly. The more I watch, the more I learn. But this is cool. I haven't finished all of it because I called Danny and we talked about rebooting the podcast and he wants to break down every single episode of the Queen's Gambit, all seven of them, and talk about not only the life and times in the sixties and, and when this show took place, um, and the fifties to some extent, and how does that relate to chess today? Or is the show valid? Are the, are the moves and the openings they're showing valid or not? Is it real chess and how, how have things changed over the years? Um, seeing that the show is based on a fictional character, you know, how, how did they do? And uh, the first episode we just put out last week, I'll put it in the show notes, blunders.fm is where you can get it. Just type in blunders on your on your um, podcast app and we show up, Coffeehouse Blunders. And yeah, we break down everything. I, I will say, um, you haven't listened to it yet because I haven't put it out yet, um, but um, as, as of this recording, but it the first episode was absolutely fantastic. I've watched episode two or one twice now and the second time watching it, it, it reeled me in even more than the first time. And I took all these notes and I was pausing and I was recreating the chess moves on chess.com and I'm sucked in, man. It's so good. Um, I don't know. It's just so good. Big hype. I wasn't sure if you were saying the first episode of Queen's Gambit was good or the first episode of your show was good. Both. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> I'm excited for this because uh, you've been on hiatus for a bit of time with this podcast, and it was always one of my favorites. And I had the opportunity to meet Danny at your wedding, of all places. And that was super exciting. What a fun guy. And so it's now it's going to add like a whole nother dimension to hearing you guys talk about it. I'm not sure I can keep up with him. Um, I got out my, which book do I use? I have a book called like Chess for Dummies. Mm -hmm. And whenever I want to get good at chess again, I reread through my Chess for Dummies book. And I don't think that that's going to prepare me for the, uh, did you say master? I don't know how the rating system works, but chess king at chess.com, like, Oh, that's he's a, so cool. <laughs> he's, a, he's an international master. He was the youngest national master in Arizona by the age of like 14 or something like that. Oh, um, high achievers. Oh, yeah. Okay. He, he, he's going to tell some stories, some stories when he was over in uh, mother country, Russia, which is, which is quite uh, excellent to hear from him. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, but here's the nice thing about this podcast is this season, season one was really different than what season two is going to be on the podcast because season one, it was me and Danny talking about chess and what's going on in the world of chess and technology and coffee stuff and just all this stuff. And this one is really to the point. It's we're breaking down, not necessarily scene by scene, but we're breaking down sort of the episode into chunks 
talking about it, but you know, I'm not an expert. So I'm coming in, I'm asking the questions, understanding why they did it this way. Is it realistic? You know, the, the av I'm the avid chess player, right? So he's the, the, the master, you know, grandmaster, not well, chess international master, I guess. Yeah. So the master international master grandmaster, I think that's right. Danny okay. can correct me, but international master that is going to be kind of laying down this knowledge, but he has to just be able to describe it to me. Right. And, and make me understand because, it, and he's also interested too, in how I interpreted the show. And I think this is really fascinating is sometimes I surprise him how I interpreted the chess play compared to how he interprets it. So I think there's a good compliment, sort of like our podcast where we have this great chemistry back and forth. And, and I think Danny and I, we, we hit it out of the park. I think you're really going to enjoy it, Frank. That's awesome. There's a, there's a secondary thing that I'm looking forward to is, uh, you may not know, dear listener, but James used to have an awesome movie podcast, and I used to love listening to his movie podcast. And you got, you got into the business side, but you also talked about plots and characters and that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to hear you talk about media again, honestly. I, I just need more James in my life, so I'm I'm excited for that. I know you do it on the Nintendo, but I don't I don't play the Nintendo, but I watch a lot of TV, so this is perfect. I think you may enjoy this, and I think this might be the. In fact, Danny and I talked about that because on Coffeehouse Blunders we would get into some of the Marvel movies here and there, and then on, on this podcast we we do kind of break down some of the cinematography. We talk about the shots, why they decide to show some things versus the other things. And we do talk about the story. So it's not all chess, but anyways, that's our podcast this week. Check out my other podcasts that I have too many <laughs> podcasts, coffee house blunders at blunders.fm or Nintendo dispatch at Nintendo dispatch.com. Or, you know, if you just like this podcast, that is good enough for me. Uh, but as long as you're hitting that subscribe button and, and sharing this with a friend, we would, we would appreciate that. We love it. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to all of James. How much James do you need? <laughs> all of it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for so this week. So we did week's... it. We did it. I mean, it, it we, we stretched out that last one, but just because I wanted to talk about that. But otherwise, I think we nailed it. We, we did a lot of topics, five minutes each. Lightning round success. Success. And in fact, yes, you can tell us what you want for episode 240 in just 10 weeks by going to mergeconflict.fm. There's a contact button. You can email us, you can join our Discord server, or you can just tweet at us. And we keep all of those and we put that into our little topics Google Sheets over here. And we will be talking about those topics maybe even before then. So head over to mergeconflict.fm. But that's going to do it for this week's podcast. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.